My name is Lex Dad, and I'm a local Darug man. We share country up here in the Blue Mountains with the Gundangara people. I'd like to pay respects to our elders, both past and present. I'd like to pay respects to our young people who are our emerging elders. I'd like to pay respects to Pema Wianga, Mother Earth, and Father Sky, Biami. And I say in our link, local Darug language, Warami Mirega Darug Nyora. Welcome, friends, to Darug country and Yanana Budrigumara. May we all walk with good spirit, with patience, humility, and respect for one another. Didgeridgora, and thank you. Hello from Darug and Gundungurra land. Uh, I'm Catherine. And I'm Zach. And we are the hosts of the radio show Paperback Writer, a show about all things books. Um, and we're very excited um, to be here. And Zach's quickly getting out his phone uh, to read his part that he wasn't prepared for. But be- I'm very prepared. <laughs> because Paperback <laughs> Writer is a book show for all paperback writers and readers, featuring book reviews, interviews with local Australian and international authors, New releases, literary awards, novel ideas, and a lot of book-related and non-book-related puns as well. I feel like we should know that by now, really. I know. I should know that off the top of my head. <laughs> um, speaking of interviews, we have an interview coming up today, don't we? It's true. Yes, we do. Uh, so, um, in about an hour's time, uh, we're going to have uh, Shandu Bickford come into the studio. She was the uh, winner of the short story category of our Regenesis competition that was a competition uh, that was um, made available only to Blue Mountains residents. Uh, there was a, three different categories, poetry, short stories, um, and also artwork as well. And Shandu was the winner of the short story category. So we're really excited for her to come in and we're going to have a chat to her about her background and um, all the things she's been doing and uh, the things that she will be doing in the future as well. So you know, we need one of those um, claps, you know, a soundbite of a clap when you say she was the winner and you're like, yeah, clap, clap, clap. And we also need one of those things when you do jokes. Wah, 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 when I wah. do jokes. Yes. When you do jokes. Do you notice I said you quite specifically? No, that's when we do. When you do jokes, you do that. No, when I do jokes, I have that. Tumbleweed. Yeah, you wish. <laughs> How have you been, Kath? I've been good, actually. Um, yeah, good. I've read some really good books lately. Oh, nice one. Um, one of them, Ursula Le Guin, which I won't talk about because oh. I know you're sick of the Ursula Le Guin <laughs> show. Le Guin but again. For yep. anyone listening, so. Actually, my mum's on holiday, so <laughs> for, for people listening on the podcast, maybe. Yeah. I think Madison might be listening. Yeah. So. Shout out to Madison. Hello, Madison. What, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I've just finished the Earth Sea, uh, the four Earth Sea books by Ursula Gwynn, and they were freaking incredible. Cool. Yeah. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Should right. I start? Yes, please do. Um, so I have just finished Charlotte, Charlotte McConaughey's Migrations, a novel. Um, far out, what a book. So I'd heard of her before. I think she might know a friend of a friend mine because I remember reading about it on Facebook and you know saying oh my god this book's so good and congratulations this is such a big deal um and I'd also known that it got a lot of really good reviews so it's been on my list um for a while uh and I started it and oh I I read it very very quickly it's it's easy to read um but it's hard material so basically the 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 stories What, what do you mean by hard material 
it's heavy, I suppose. It's okay. raw. It's sure. very powerful, but it's very raw. Um, so the story's about Franny Stone. So she's Irish-Australian, and she's had a lot of sort of trauma in her life, and she's quite messed up. Um, and so a lot of the story follows her, and you sort of hear her in a process. Um, but th- the story itself... It's a, it's a not-so-distant future where a lot of the world's animals have gone extinct. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 80% of all wildlife has gone extinct. You go to the forest, there are no birds anymore, more or less. Um, so it's about three or four years in the future. Yeah, it yeah. feels a bit like it. Well, and that's the thing. It's it's commentary on climate change. Yep. Uh, so she, yeah, the, I think like the polar bears are gone, the wolves are gone. Uh, in the book, they actually talk about a special uh, facility in Scotland where they try and keep the any animal like hedgehogs <laughs> keeping <laughs> them alive and um, and a focus on insects because insects you know pollination yeah. of plants and they're really important for the future um whereas franny and her partner um niall their fascination is birds um so they they really want to, to keep um birds alive basically yep, and enough. so franny goes to greenland uh, um, and that's where the story starts and it sort of weaves in and out and goes back and forth in her life and she uh talks her way onto one of the few remaining fishing boats which are quickly like being they're very demonized fishermen because they've trawled all the sea for fish there's hardly any fish um and she manages to to talk away to one of them to to, uh help track a turn you know the bird the turn the arctic turn t-e-r-n and so there's they think it's probably the last ones in the world she manages to get three um so it's their turn to have all the focus nice. put on them. Well, it's actually not. She's oh. decided that it should be, but okay. no one's like that. They're like, well, look, they're going to die probably. You know, let's focus on what we can actually save yep. because the turns migrate. So the book's called Migrations. I don't even think I said that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I, I think you did, but but we there's a, another title for that book, isn't there? The Last Migration. It's also named, yeah, and I don't know okay. why. Um, maybe an American audience, because you know how Americans are a bit. Sorry. No, I, I don't, Catherine. Say that. Okay, so... Finish that sentence. All right. One of my favourite books is by Frederick Backman. He's a Swedish author. Yep. It's called My Grandmother Sends Her Regards and Apologises. When they published it in America, they called it My Grandma Called to Say She's Sorry. Um, this is what I mean. Like, yeah. American audiences... And, you know, often that's they weird. remake shows. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Maybe Migrations was too... Yeah, I okay. don't know. I should look up why it was changed. Yeah. Anyway, so she's a Sydney writer. Um, and so, I mean, that's amazing too. Yeah. Um, well, it's not amazing. It's just so cool to sort have someone local, local yeah. you know. Um, anyway, so, yes, yeah, she, she manages to get three, what's it called? Not a homing tag, but, like, a tag on them so they can track where they're going. A homing tag. Is it called that? Uh, I guess so. Uh, well, either a tracking way. Tracking device, device, I suppose. Yep. Uh, and, she mani- and so she says to this, this group of very rough fishermen, because it's a very dangerous job, you, you're, you're getting less and less fish. If you follow the turns, they will find the fish. Mm. And you will get a huge haul. And it's really hard for her because she's vegetarian and she feels mm. sick that they're fishermen. But she knows it's sort of the sacrifice she needs to make. And so they obviously don't like her because they think she's a greenie and she's never really, you know, learned to work on a boat. So it sort of follows her back and forth throughout her life um, growing up. Um, she's got a lot of s- trauma and a lot of stuff going on. Um, and it's sort of... There's a... Yeah... Her history, I guess you'd say, migrations, I think, could talk to her too. You know, she's very much yeah. a wanderer. And all the women in her life um, have not been able to settle very long. They've always had to wander and they found it very difficult to stay. Um, and she's the same. And she always has to be free. And she's got a huge connection to the ocean. And I tell you what, 
her description of you know the Arctic and how cold it was, you sort of feel cold reading it. You know, it's it's described so well. Um, I do I do like those kind of books when you really like you read a book when it's hot, sitting yeah. in a hot place, and you feel like you're sweating. Yeah, even, even though <laughs> you're sitting in front of the air conditioner. And that's the thing. I was I, I was been reading in this in the morning under a duvet with a cup of coffee. Um, it's quite a. Sh- a sh- well, I wouldn't say it's a short book. I mean, the problem is I've been reading fantasy, so fantasy is so freaking long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I really, really loved it. I think she she's a beautiful writer. She's described it really well. You, I, I was reading the Goodreads reviews, and the people that don't like it find Franny an odious character, okay. and they don't feel sorry for it at all, which I think is really interesting. And maybe it's my background in social work maybe that i see that the way she's acting is out of trauma <laughs> you know and maybe i had a bit of empathy for her i don't know but yep. um once a social worker always a social <laughs> worker but look i would 100 percent recommend it i think it's it's really really good and it's it's raw and it's powerful um it doesn't look too long either it's not a particularly no. thick book, so. and she's written another one since this called i think it's then there were wolves that came out in 2021 which i'm absolutely going to get now yeah um yeah, so Charlotte McConaughey migrations, or known as the last migration. Sure. Um, and look, it's one. It's got amazing reviews from New York Times, the Australian, the LA mm. Times, Washington Post. Um, a nervy and well crafted novel, one that lingers long after its voyage ends. And I would totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, that's cool. You know, you you connect with Franny, but the the crew on the boat, they're all sort of a gang of misfits, and you sort of, you sort of, I don't know, you love them and you hate them and you. You're just frustrated at Franny, but also, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's people in her life that care about her and she just can't be with them. And yeah, it's very powerful. I, yeah. I think I've said that th- about three times now. No, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, so definitely recommend that one. And a, an Australian writer as well. And, and a, a Sydney And a Sydney-based writer. writer. Yeah, so, yeah, 100%. That's great. Excellent to see. While we were on the uh, yep. listening to music, I looked up migrations and the last migration. So it was originally called the last migration, but now it's been renamed. They changed to migrations. the name. I migrations is better. It doesn't say why they changed name. I'm going to be honest. I didn't look that far. Okay, because <laughs> 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 no, we, we already knew there were two different names for it. So no, I just wondered if it was an American thing or not. But um, yeah, because yeah, you know what they're like. Yeah. I uh, oh, I know what they're like. <laughs> so, um, so what have you been? Reading? Something completely different. Um, so one of our customers from the bookshop, uh, from, um, our little bookshop, Rosie Ralston Books down in Hazelbrook, one of our fantastic regular customers, um, Jane. Uh, oh, I love Jane. Jane she, she's amazing. She Good donated some books too. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. she donated a few um, books to us as well. Um, one of the books she gave us is a little, or it's definitely I would call it a novella. It's mm. quite small, um, but it's called Silk, S-I-L-K. So for the New Zealand listeners, that's silk. silk. Yep. <laughs> for Australians, uh, that's silk. <laughs> <laughs> it's fully silk. Um, so it's silk by Alessandro Bar- Barico, um, an Italian writer, I believe. Why, why did you say it like in a Alessandro Spanish accent? Alessandro Barico. Well, how do you how do you pronounce that in Italian? Oh, you've got to be like a mum, mummy, like oh, that. What, hey, hey, are Alessandro. there any other any other countries that you want to make fun of today? No. <laughs> Americans are like that. All Italians say, if speak like Mamma Mia. Anyway. Are you done? Continue. <laughs> Tell me about the book. <laughs> um, 
So, Silk, so uh, I hadn't actually heard of this book, but apparently it is a bit of a, a classic. Mm, I haven't um, read it. And it's got some very rave reviews. And um, Jane uh, left a little, a lovely little note with this book um, saying that she really enjoyed it as well. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I couldn't say no, I had to, to read it. And particularly, it's only, what, uh, 100 pages long mm. uh, and quite a small book at that. Um, I'll just read the blurb on the back quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's France in 1861. A young silk breeder has to travel overland to distant Japan, out of bounds to foreigners, to smuggle out healthy silkworms. Mm. When an epidemic has wiped out the European hatcheries, he sets eyes upon his Japanese host's concubine and is at once in love with never a word spoken. Uh, oh, that's the end of the blurb. That's the end of the blurb. Yeah. When is this set? And then it goes on oh, to it. It, it uh, the, the back cover anyway um, takes a, a couple of sentences from or a couple of paragraphs from the book mm -hmm. um, to give you a bit of a feel for it. But I won't read that out uh, at the moment. Um, so it's set in 1861. Oh, so it's an older one because they France. eat mulberry leaves. Did you know that? Yeah, they the do. Bush? That's right. Yeah. So. Um, it's and I looked this up on Goodreads as well after I read it and. Uh, um, had a look at a few reviews, and it's very. It is a very popular book. It, it has um, quite uh, quite high ratings uh, in a number of different places. Um, and when you read that blurb, or if someone tells you a bit about the story, you you do kind of expect it to be this sweeping historical mm. um, fiction. Uh, and it's in some ways, it's a very very condensed version of that because um, it is written over the course of a few years. Uh, and it does talk a bit about what it's like living in France during uh, the 1860s. Um, it talks quite a bit about, uh, it will give you a feel at least for what Japan was like in the 1860s yeah. when it was a, a, a very closed society and foreigners were um, very rarely allowed to actually enter the country yeah. um, and the Japanese wanted to protect their culture and to, they weren't interested in trading with the outside world really. Uh, and there's a whole... Well, yeah, because people go to steal all their silkworms. Well, well, but, I mean, you would argue <laughs> they went to do that because they weren't allowed to buy silkworms no. from the Japanese. And there's a whole history around um, Western countries forcing Japan open to trade, which they also actually did with China as well. But that's a... And a number of countries, but that's a whole other mm -hmm. <laughs> conversation. Um, so the story is basically this young... Uh, I think he's relatively young silkworm um, merchant who has to travel to Japan to uh, get the silkworm larvae, basically, or the eggs, I think. Mm. Um, and he gets them on mulberry leaves. Yeah. So they come on mulberry leaves um, and he takes them back. He basically has to smuggle himself into the country and then smuggle uh, himself back out. And How he does, does he this... smuggle them? Like, does he put it in his pants or something? Because that's what... No, I... in a, he has a box or something, some oh, sort of okay. luggage that he takes mm. and he, he, he puts them uh, in there. And the interesting thing is because they have a... Uh, they hatch within a certain time, yeah. he needs to get them back to France ASAP, basically. Oh. And you're talking about the 1860s. So <laughs> you're not exactly hopping on a 12-hour yeah, you know, flight. flight. Yeah. Um, so, and also, you know, you have to, he has to smuggle himself into Japan and out of Japan as well. Wow. So he does this, you know, he basically travels overland from France all the way through Europe, all the way across Russia uh, to the far east of Russia and then mm -hmm. gets a boat to Japan from there. Right. And so he has to do this trip a few times. Um, really what the book is about, though, is when he meets the concubine of, uh, I don't know if it's a Japanese warlord necessarily, but it's a, a, a leader of a Japanese village. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, he has this concubine and they uh, the author um, makes it clear that the concubine is not originally Japanese but we don't know her ethnicity right um, so it's not, it's not a geisha it's a an, like when you well, say it's not a geisha but it's, it's a woman who lives with the yeah. the mayor of the town the and is him, yeah basically yeah. exactly right um, and like she belongs to him essentially mm. Um but and the interesting thing, she never says a word to to this um, French guy. But the French guy pretty much almost immediately falls in love with her. Um, and so the the general gist of the story is it's a it's um, a love story between two people who never actually have a direct interaction with each other. Hmm. It's kind of just through hidden glances, and um, I think there's a secret note that gets passed oh. um, between them at one stage. Uh, I won't go into too much detail about how it all ends up but that's pretty much the gist of the story that it's a, a love story between two people who never actually speak to each other Can, yep you got a question so he's italian no he's french the author is italian right that makes way more yeah. sense because i was like he's writing he's got a french main character who goes to japan but he's italian yeah that's right oh so that is right oh sorry yeah, you're saying the author is italian the author's the character's italian. french the character's and french he and he to goes japan. to japan that's right nice exactly um and it's uh, and they, so one of the interesting thing, thing interesting things about this book is that there's uh, deliberate use of repetition. So when uh, the French guy is traveling uh, from France to Japan, which he does, I think he does five or six times, um, the author uses ex- almost exactly the same uh, writing mm. for each trip that he does. He makes one little slight change each time, yeah. um, which I, and I quite like. I quite like the. Uh, that as a literary device, the idea of uh, repetition. The idea of... Repetition. The idea of... Repetition. <laughs> so... Thanks for playing along. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do quite like it, and that can work quite well. I found myself in this book, though, once the second time after I... When I read it the second time... <laughs> when I got to the first repetition... Got it. So I read it... The know, second time he travelled. Exactly. And the story That's was right. repeated. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, I didn't want to have to repeat myself. Um <laughs> I realized really I realized what he was doing, the author, yeah. and then basically every other time I pretty much just skipped that whole paragraph <laughs> because I just I knew exactly what was what he was going to do again, um, and r- the one word that he changed was usually right at the end of the paragraph. Mm. Um, so in my mind, I feel like that's a bit of a flaw in the writing because the the his choice of paragraph for repetition was quite a bland paragraph. It's basically he travelled. From here to there, through there to there, via this way. That's basically what he repeats. If you come up with uh, a paragraph that is just beautiful, um, flowing language, and then you use uh, you repeat that throughout the book five or six times, that I feel like works a lot better than Why using a think- sentence that's just very kind of direct and to the point and a bit bland, really. But. Uh- I don't know. It kind of makes sense to me because, like, he he went there and he did this, and it, 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 doing all of those things would have taken time and would have taken planning. And so to kind of, it's not just oh, I'm in Japan now. It, it actually shows you the passage of time. But that's one paragraph. And what I think would have been fascinating was to actually learn more about that journey. Yeah. That journey itself sounds fascinating because it was something. It took something like um, eight weeks or something. I think like eight a couple weeks. of months, something like that. Like it was quite a long trip, and he was, you know, he had to ride a horse for part of it, and then he had to catch a train. And he did it four and, or five times. No yeah, stuff that. 
Yeah, he's well. I, I know, get annoyed exactly. when you catch the train. Well, he did Sydney. it. He did it. Like, I think it was every year he had to do it to get fresh. Yeah. Um, eggs. Eggs. Yeah, silkworm eggs. Um, but the idea is that I mean that that the actual travel. I think it's especially set during the 1860s, what that experience would have been like would have been fascinating. Mm. Um, and I know he's tried to keep the book really short, and he's focused on the love story, not the. It's not a story of travel, really. It's a story. Uh, uh, it's a love story more than anything else. But it just seemed like a really odd choice for the repetition, um, in, in, to my mind anyway. Um, it's funny sorry. when books do that, isn't it? And, and you're like, no, I want to hear more about this part. And they don't actually talk about it or focus on it. Yep. And, you know, the idea of travel, that was what, I, and I'll talk about Hannah Kent, but that's what I loved about Devotion by Hannah Kent is that six months were spent coming to Adelaide yeah, yeah. from Prussia. And that was so fascinating to me. Yep. To, I mean, you knew that people travelled by ship back then, but... Mm. Oh, it was, sounded horrible. Well, that's the thing. This guy was traveling by horse mm. and by train and by ship. And he was going through the entirety of Europe. Yeah, wow. Through um, Central Europe, through Eastern Europe, through And then he meets someone Russia. who falls in love with who won't even talk to him. Well, yeah, Rude. exactly. Because it's forbidden love as well, which yeah. I think is part of the appeal of the book yeah. to people. Um, I'm going to be honest. I didn't actually enjoy the book much. And <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Jane. Uh, I, I can see why people like it. Um, I thought the, I didn't think it worked very well as a love story either. Um, and you can kind of see a bit later on why that happened. I, I can't really say much about it because it gives away a few things. See, now I want to read it. You've, you've got, because you Jane, should read it. I highly Jane recommend it. chooses books that I really like in yep. the bookshop. So maybe it, it's something that I would enjoy, but not so much you. I highly recommend reading it. You know what? Is there Even war though in, I didn't like it. Is there war in it? No, there yeah, isn't. Yeah, see, that's why you don't like it. Well, there yeah. actually, there is a little bit, but that's, <laughs> that's not a, a fair comment at all. <laughs> so you didn't like it, but you you thought it was worth reading. Yeah, I think so. I think it, I think it's because it is quite a short book as well. Um, mm. And I actually I I didn't really like the writing style that much. And I, well, it has been it has been translated. It has been, but yeah, but again, I've read I've read other books that have been translated and have been amazing and beautiful and fantastic. Um, but this mm. didn't really fit the bill. And I have to say, I struggled quite a while after reading it to understand why I didn't really like it very much. Interesting. Then I went on to Goodreads. Oh, uh, here we go. All right. Um, yeah, but Goodreads people didn't like migrations. That's ridiculous. No, no I know, I know. It was and, such and again, a good book. As I said, it's rated <laughs> people quite are high, incorrect. It's rated quite highly on Goodreads. So I'm okay. not saying that uh, everyone else is wrong and I'm right, although that's probably the case. Um, but there <laughs> that's was what I always say. there was a review. As soon as I read this review, I went, "Oh, that's why I don't like this book." Okay. So Alex um, from in 2009 rated it one star out of five. Right. Um, Barico, the author's surname, is Paolo Coelho's Italian doppelganger. Where one purveys phony mysticism, the other deals in equally phony romanticism. That's just about the only difference. Luckily, the book is 57 pages long, barely qualifying as a novella. I don't understand. What have I missed? Paolo Coelho, author of The Alchemist. Ah. Yeah. But you know what? Someone came into the shop the other day, Bori, and, and she was saying how good... Paolo Coelho is and I was like well I read The Alchemist and I hate it and she said no 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 read his other books he's fantastic so this is the point though Kat what he didn't explicitly say it. he's comparing this book to The yeah. Alchemist oh and this book to The Alchemist yes. specifically yes specifically oh you've put me right off that's, now that's what I'm getting at uh, and when oh. I read that I went ah yes that's exactly right it actually it reminds me so much of The Alchemist what so he really wants the concubine and so he believes if he just 
believes that it'll happen. It doesn't have the same. Well, actually, to a certain extent, there's an element of that. Oh, but sorry, I'm not reading it. That's now. the thing. <laughs> you put me off it. As this guy, these uh, reviewers on Goodreads said, uh, the Alchemist is about phony mysticism. This is about phony romanticism, and a lot of people talk about how romantic it is, and it's such a beautiful love story, and. I have to say, I don't really get that. Like the idea of phony romanticism sounds pretty spot mm. on when I when I read this book. I'm more interested in the mulberry leaves and the silkworms. Well, again, and, yeah. again, like there's some really fascinating uh, material to work with there, but it kind mm. of gets lost with this weird relationship between a, a concubine and this guy who never talk, and and then it kind of has a strange ending as well to do with uh, a handwritten note that gets translated and yeah anyway it's uh, it's <laughs> you've piqued my curiosity I know though. I do uh, yeah. I do recommend reading it I, I mean I think it is it should short be isn't it 57 yeah. pages yeah but so is the alchemist and I had oh, yeah. yeah exactly exactly and that that's the thing I, I did struggle a little bit to understand why I didn't like it until I, I and I'd seen another couple of reviews after that by people comparing it to the alchemist as well um, and sorry to fans of The Alchemist because I know there is a lot of you oh, out there, but it. I just did not like that book at all, and I don't, I don't really get it. Um, I actually preferred Silk more than The Alchemist. I'll say that much. <laughs> but, but I mean, the bar's pretty low. It is. Um, so yeah, that was that was Silk. Sorry about that, Jane. <laughs> I, can, I can definitely see why you recommended it, and I can see, I understand that a lot of people like it, but um, it wasn't for me. So I'm interested for you to read it. You too, know, though. I will. <laughs> I th- yeah, I think I'm curious enough that I'll read it. I mean, I could you could read that in a sitting. It's pretty short, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Which is lucky because I'm glad I didn't spend any more of my life reading it. <laughs> well, usually the books you read are about sixteen Double times that size. Of, yeah, yeah exactly. five hundred pages each. Um, cool. So that was Silk. Um, read it, but you probably won't like it. Silk by Alessandro Baricco. Welcome back to Paperback Writer with Catherine and Zach on Radio Blue Mountains, 89.1 FM. Um, cool. So uh, we're very lucky to be joined by Shandu Bickford. Um, she's popped into the studio. How are you, Shandu? I'm well, thanks. Excellent. Yeah, really well. Um, so uh, as we said at the start of the show, we've invited Shandu to come in and have a chat to us. Shandu is the, um, among many other things, um, <laughs> is the, uh, was the winner of uh, the short story um, component of the Regenesis competition that we had. Uh, recently in the Blue Mountains, um, and we uh, we had a chat to Shandu, a brief chat at the Regenesis launch mm-hmm. um, in Katoomba a few weeks ago, which was good. But we thought we'd get to Shandu come um, back on and do a bit of more of an in-depth um, chat, and just find out a bit more about Shandu and um, her writing and the piece that she wrote for Regenesis, and yeah, um, and also listen to some music that uh, Shandu has suggested as well. So um, Shandu. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Do you want to just give us a little bit of background information about uh, who you are and how you ended up in the Blue Mountains? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Zach, and thanks, Kath, for inviting me here today. It's a, it's always lovely to you know connect with the locals and you know and the local community through our beautiful radio here. Mm. So I am I'm a local Blue Mountains woman. Yep. I was born, raised in the Blue Mountains. Grew up in Springwood on an acreage. Um, you know, surrounded by bush, so spent a lot of my bush making, um, my, a lot of my childhood in the bush making mm-hmm. cubbies, <laughs> you know, with, you know, neighbourhood kids and running around barefoot with dogs. Nice. Um, so, yeah, so the the bush has been a really big part of my my life and my experience, I guess, of, of, the, of life, yeah, having that opportunity to 
to be in it, to be part of the seasons, to be, you know, growing up in it, creeks, cubbies, yabbies, yeah, <laughs> caves, yep. yeah. And it, it does that get reflected in your writing from time to time? Yeah, totally, mm. yeah. It's, it's, it's in my writing, but it's in my writing because it's still part of my life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the keys. Um, you know, I've lived in different countries around the world and had a lot of different roles, but I think one of the things that is, you know, is that the bush and nature itself is is feels like it's a really vital part of who I am and that it actually sustains who I am and, mm. and what I do in the world. And so, you know, living back up here in the mountains has been, um, it's been a, a really beautiful sort of homecoming, I guess, to, to kind of reground into, you know, not only do we live in a World Heritage National Park, <laughs> which is, you know, a phenomenal yep. and life-changing experience for all of us, but... Mm. You know, it's it's one of the most beautiful places on earth, as far as I'm concerned, natural places. Um, yep. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in the caves, I'm out in the bush, I'm still wandering around barefoot, you know, <laughs> like I was when I was a little girl. Yeah, yeah. it's a way to be, especially oh, totally. when you live in the mountains. Yeah. I feel so blessed. Um, so you, it, you kind of, uh, it sounds like you've, uh, I mean, you've lived in the mountains your whole life, but you have done a bit of travel as well. So you have you lived in other places or is it just mainly travel that you've done yeah no 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 I lived in um predominantly in East Africa for about 10 years oh wow it's a contrast from yeah the Blue Mountains. big contrast <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well yeah not as many gum trees although we did have a few <laughs> yeah um certainly yeah it was I lived in a remote village in Tanzania for quite a long time many years and um that was a fairly you know traditional way of living over there so you know growing corn and beans as the staples uh, living in accordance with the seasons um, yeah. where I was living um, the village had no electricity most places had no running water so mm. the water supply was a kilometer up the hill yeah. um, there was a tank so you had to walk up with buckets and then bring it back so two buckets of water a day for a couple of years um, <laughs> wow. and when you one bucket is the equivalent of a full flush of a toilet yeah. yeah so um and you know so therefore you know growing food with hands and you know relying on rain relying on the right mm. amount of sun relying on you know no mm. locusts to yep. come through so very quite a different experience to what i had growing up here but still immersed in nature yeah. um which you know, going to bed when it was dark because, you know, you couldn't see. Um, <laughs> and waking up when it was light and going to work in the fields. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, and so uh, when did you come back to the mountains? Have you? So I came back to the mountains in, it was around the end of 2008, 2009. Okay, cool. Yep. And um, did you feel that much had changed in the time you'd been away? Yeah, look, a lot had changed. I had been kind of coming backwards and forwards because mm -hmm. I'd started um, and... I guess, uh, a, a small business. I didn't know much about business, but I'd started a business working with the local um, women in the region to help them to boost their local economy. Um, so with the beautiful, lovely arts and crafts that they used to make baskets and mm. weaving and things. So it's, it was sort of before fair trade even became a thing. I started a yeah. fair trade organisation. Oh, and so cool. I would come back to Australia. So I did a bit of straddling between the two. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things that was really telling for me was having grown up in the mountains was sort of coming up the mountains. And, you know, I might be gone for, you know, a few years at a time and then I'd come back. But at night... I could see the lights on the plains creeping closer to yeah. the mountains. That the spread yeah. was getting bigger, yeah. and that was—I guess—that was one of the the real tellers for me, 
as to the growth and the development of Australia was yep. that particularly in our region, like from the plains up to the mountains, was just the, the spread of lights at night because, of course, we didn't have lights at night. Yep. And so it was really <laughs> obvious for me coming back here just to see each time I'd come back. Yep. Um, but particularly after that, yeah, that, that long period of time coming back, it was like, wow, there's, there's real growth happening here. There's a lot more people. There's mm-hmm. a lot more development. There's a lot more housing and infrastructure. And, um, you know, our village had like 800 people in it, little mud huts, grass roofs, yep. you know, no vehicles, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now so we'll wait till um, Western Sydney Airport gets finished. Oh, that's <laughs> another conversation, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. A lot more of So can you tell us a little, a little bit more about the, uh, the fair trade um, mm. Organisation that you're involved with because that that really sounds quite interesting. So that that was in Tanzania. Yeah, so that was in Tanzania. And, and, and what what prompted you to do that? Well, I think one of the things was that you know I wasn't just like you know a visitor there. I was living there. I was immersed in the culture. Like mm. I, I and I was living in the hut, you know, with the bucket of water and and the corn and. And what I was seeing was that, I mean, it was hard. Like, it was really hard. Like, there were calluses on calluses and bleeding calluses on calluses. There was, you know, I remember, um, you know, and I didn't go over with a lot of money or anything. Like, it wasn't, you know, I didn't kind of go in as part of an organisation or anything. So what I noticed was that even though I was having incredible hardship as in adjusting and living that way, just the day-to-day life was hard, that you know, I still actually had choices and privilege. Mm. You know, I was there by choice, no matter how hard things got, and things did get really hard. I sort of always knew that I I could leave. Yeah. And I could yep. see that 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 wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there was... Um, at that stage, you know, we're talking now the late 90s, so sort of 1999, 2000, 2001, um, there was a secondary school... Um, in the region, like, uh, you know, in, across the river on the other side, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. But mostly, you know, school finished for most people after seven years. So they actually finished high school, at, well, finished sc- their schooling education at the age of 13 or 14. Wow. There mm. was not places for even high school students. Mm. And so, you know, they would grow up to be farming and, you know, their, their choices... Um, and opportunities were really, really limited. You know, the infrastructure is very different, or it was back then, to mm. what we have. You know, we've got Medicare, we've got Centrelink, we've, you know, we've got, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're sitting here in a TAFE building. You know, we've <laughs> got all these opportunities. Yeah. And you know, I just the women were toiling so hard, and you know, they, but they had these beautiful arts and crafts, these lovely baskets and mats and trays and things that they were using, and we were using as mm. part of our daily life, and. I was just, I remember talking with my dad and, um, you know, we would snail mail each other, you know, so every six weeks the, the mail would come in and I'd yeah. get a letter from my dad and, you know, I was saying to him, like, there's, you know, there's just, there's just this beautiful, beautiful traditions and cultures and things that are here that are, you know, they're, you know, and there's, there's extreme poverty, so what can mm. we do? And I remember my dad being a bit of a gambler sort of said, okay, well, here's $1,000, see what you can do. <laughs> and that was how I started the yeah. business. Not knowing anything, I'd been a nurse, so I was a public yep. servant, I knew nothing about business. Yep. Um, and we didn't have internet, we didn't have a phone, we didn't <laughs> have a car, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have running water. Like, yep. it was just like, okay, let's... let's. You had the motivation, work. though. Had the motivation yeah. and the opportunity. Yeah, that's yeah? true. Yeah. And just decided to use that yeah, yeah. so that's I, really cool. um, yeah so it was a challenge um and 
it you know yeah it was a lot of learning let's put it that way yeah. <laughs> it's a big yeah. learning curve yeah but yeah. it did it, it brought a lot of um it brought a lot of money back into the local economy it meant that people could actually spend their time doing the things that they've always done rather you know rather than having to think about other ways Mm. yeah and it meant that that money came into the women and you know the women were often the ones who were you know the ones who they could buy medicine for their kids if they were sick they could get the school shirt or you know a book you know even just like an exercise book a 10 Mm. cent exercise book Mm. was out of the realm of a lot of people's opportunity you know so all the stuff we tend to take for granted all the stuff we take for granted yeah Yeah. for sure and um, for our younger listeners snail mail um (laughs) Back in the day, you used to have to actually write on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope to communicate with people. So just in case you're not sure what snail mail is. So I think things have changed a bit since then. They have changed a bit, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, six weeks, we were lucky if we got something. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. it would be months. Yeah, wow. And, you know, it would be months having contact with anyone. Um, so it was quite, you know, it was quite an isolating Very experience. Yeah. Learned a lot about sitting with myself and yeah. sitting with seasons and learning yep. the seasons of myself and learning the seasons of, of you know, our planet. Um, cool. Paperback writer. Uh, I guess your living in, in Tanzania came to an end and then you came back to the mountains, is that right? And then what, what did you do back in the mountains? Yeah, so I had been straddling between the two for a little while. Okay. So I was sort of running the business as well as living in Africa and then kind of coming back here, studying business and working also as a cultural educator. So part of the work I was doing to support the the I guess the practical side of the business was the arts and the crafts with the indigenous women but mm-hmm. the other side of that was around topics of inclusive inclusion racism prejudice um exclusion those I mean they're fairly tough topics yeah. but what oh. I was doing was bringing those into early childhood centers for staff and kids schools with working with local government libraries and things and high schools I ended up doing some board of studies programs for high schools yeah. including those those themes and you know back again you know in the early 2000s that was not as common as it is Mm, now like you know when we talk about culture and diversity like it's it's really come a long way which I'm really happy for Um, but it has changed a lot in in the time and so I was doing these workshops you know uh, with you know different organizations which were cultural Mm. um, workshops around you know those themes so Moving back um, in the late 2000s, that was, um, that was, it was a bit shocking. <laughs> yeah, it was always shocking sort of coming back, but moving back was quite shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite nice in some ways as well, being close to family and, mm. and infrastructure. Um, and the bush. And the bush yeah. was, mm. the, I mean, the bush has been incredibly supportive for me personally. Um, it's a place that I've always felt that I can go and spend time, hang out, um, and and I guess just reground myself because it is who I am. I remember like even being in Tibet, you know, in like, I don't know, 1997 or something like that and um, hitchhiking around. And, you know, I remember finding this little strand of gum trees by this (laughs) stream and, you know, I'd been on the road at that stage for, you know, a year and a half or whatever and this uh, just sitting underneath these gum trees and just the sound of the leaves there's a particular mm. sound of breeze through gum leaves yep. <laughs> and it was visceral in my body and I can remember just feeling, oh, it's like this, this is, 
it's it's there's still home with me and I hadn't seen family or friends or anyone for a really long time and that and everything was really foreign for me and I was foreign to it so just those small moments where there's you know I could tap back into that cellular Mm. connection with nature Um, Um, and yeah sorry I just (laughs) I have to just go back to the hitchhiking around Tibet (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you need to tell us a little bit about that okay what was that experience (laughs) okay so that was um it was a little tricky because yes, technically back in 1997 or whatever it was you actually had to have a um you actually had to have a tour group yep. to go into Tibet so a number of us in a hostel in Delhi decided one night to form a tour group <laughs> and um, a couple of guys who'd rode overland from the UK to India on motorbikes and push bikes um, and another couple of women and we all just decided you know we're in our late 20s and we all just went okay well we want to go to Tibet we don't want to do a tour we'll form our own tour company so that's what we did we formed the tour company got over the border and then split up (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so hitchhiking around Tibet was hairy um, and I was hitchhiking with one other young woman and but you know I mean it was just like a packet of cigarettes to the driver and hiding under the tarpaulin in the back of the truck (laughs) for while you're driving you know through the Alps or the Himalayas or you know where it's just at altitude camping by lakes you know lying in like trekking in the same clothes because it was cold then sleeping in them wrapping yourself in a blanket getting into the sleeping bag marshmallow on the end of a chopstick over a candle (laughs) you know in the tent (laughs) yeah for dinner you know it was pretty it was pretty hardcore that's amazing yeah yeah. Yeah. (laughs) kind of prepared me for living in Africa I'd already spent quite a bit of time traveling through Africa Mm. but that sort of hardcore living then prepared me to go back and live in that much harder because yep. travel is different to living yes it's <laughs> yes, very, no doubt about very that. different kettle of fish yep. yeah very much so um so i do want to talk a little bit about um your writing as mm. well i mean we're a paperback writer or a show about books and writing um how long have you been writing for because mm. we'll come back to this in a little bit because I, I suspect a lot of your experiences and stories are reflected in your writing but when did you first start writing? Is it something you've been doing pretty much forever or are you relatively new to it? Yeah. Um, no, the former. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I started writing actually before I started writing, if that makes sense. Yep, sure. So I can remember as a little girl going down in the backyard and being on the swing at about four, age mm-hmm. four, and swinging backwards and forwards and writing songs and poems in my head and just singing them to myself like over <laughs> and over and over again. Yep. So I couldn't even write back then, but I have that memory. Yeah, um, wow. And I think I've always been good with journaling and, and poetry. Mm. Like that's always been a, a thing I've done, um, even through high school. But I think when I, I think it was when I was in my early 20s, probably when I was about 21, mm-hmm. I um, maybe 22, Julia Cameron kind of came with The Artist's Way and I remember it was mm-hmm. a book club. You had to, they were, like they had pamphlets and you had to write on them and send them in <laughs> and with cash or something or a money order, like that, yep. yeah, just for those people at home who, you know, <laughs> who may not snail ever... Mail. Have, yeah, yep. yeah, that's right, snail mail. <laughs> and the book came and I remember doing The Artist's Way like when I was about 20, it must have been about 22, and that was when I started, like, really, like, I knew I was a writer, but I didn't mm. know what to do with it. So now I'm 51. Yep. Yeah. So I've been writing consistently from that time. So lots of journals, boxes of journals, yep. Um, yep. and lots of, yeah, poetry, the occasional article, the, lots of short stories. I've, 
I won a scholarship with Alan Unwin a couple of years ago, um, the Faber Writing Academy, um, and I've had a couple of invited residencies at Varuna, done a bit of poetry reading with them. So it's it's something like writing for me is a it's part of who I am. I think when I was in my early 20s, I did a lot of painting as well. So I used to do landscape painting, yep. impressionist style. So out on the cliffs, here again in the bush and painting. It's a pretty good um, place in the Blue Mountains. It's a pretty <laughs> good place. <laughs> doing that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. And, um, but being on the road and then travelling, of course, you know, oil paints, French box easels, turpentine, you know, didn't really work. Mm. So whereas I could usually find a notebook and a pencil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I just want to quickly go back to something uh, else that you said uh, Catherine and I, funnily enough, were talking a little bit this morning uh, about what makes a writer. When do you know that you're a writer? Um, because I think a lot of people, uh, especially younger people, but older people as well to some extent, um, have had the same experience. They've kind of written all their life, and but they may not have had anything published. Um, and they therefore, they don't feel like they can call themselves a writer. Same with artists too, yeah, I, think. I think. And there's a sort well. of weird... Like you know, humility of well, like I can't say I'm an artist, but I do art, or I can't say I'm a writer, but I do write. You know, yeah. it's sort of it's interesting. Yeah, and mm. you, you you kind of made the point that it's it's almost it's who you are essentially. Mm. It's a mm. feeling of to you being a writer is it's just mm. what you think about when you want to you know when you want to get a thought out of your head, you're looking to write it down on a piece of paper, basically. Yeah, that's um, how I process it. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, it's, it's what I do. Yeah. You know, other people might pick up a cigarette or, mm. you know, other people might, you know, spray paint their car. I don't know. Like yeah. people, I mean, we've all, we're all different, right? Some people might cook, but yeah. you know, I've got lots of friends who are foodies and they go to food. Others, you know, go to different things, gardens. I mean, I go to gardens as well, but mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, a lot of the work that I do now is based around, supporting predominantly creatives and practitioners to step into who they are and what they want to do. Mm. And it is, I just want to just really just underline that point that you just raised, Catherine, that it's really difficult to name and claim who we are because, Mm. you know, I mean, I can say I'm a writer, you know, it's taken me years to admit that. Yeah. But I don't say I'm an author because I haven't published a book. And then it's like, well, you know, well, who am I if I'm not an author? Like I haven't published a book. And it's like, well, you know, like there's so, Mm. I think those sorts of self, those areas of self-doubt and those questions that we have as creatives, I think they're really valid. Um, And I think that, but we know who we are. Mm. You know, yep. and that's that's a process of finding that and owning that and identifying with that. And, and no one can take that away from you either. No, you know, no. Um, whether and I'm sure there probably have been people out there in the past who have said to their their friends and family that I'm a writer, and mm. they've had people say, "Well, you haven't had anything published." Mm-hmm. So, yeah. which and it is interesting the point you made before too. I mean, if people are quite often comfortable saying I'm a foodie or mm. you know I'm a rev head or that kind of thing, mm. but in the creative space to say I'm a painter or I'm a writer mm. much more challenging so that's um, that's part of uh, what you're doing now as a as a job is that is that part of your job that you're doing yeah yeah so, so I can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah so I run my own organization now so I've got yep. another business separate business the other one finished and now I've got another one I'm back here so I support 
people to move through times of change. Yeah, That's wow. people, individuals, groups and organisations to move through times of change because I think one of the things is we're moving, like change is our only constant, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> like it's the, but most of us have a habitual sort of, we fall into two realms when it comes to change. We either go into that knee-jerk old habit of reacting, yep. okay, oh my gosh, something's happening, I've got to do something, or, oh my gosh, something's happening. I don't want to do anything about it because I can't deal with it. So yeah. we've got this procrastination or the reaction. And I just help people learn tools to deal with that. And I most of that is just through my own, you know, processing of moving through massive changes in my life. Mm. And I mean, obviously I've got lots of different qualifications and things, mm. but it's a yeah, it's a it's a really interesting journey working with change. Um, so I do that sort of one-on-one with people. Um, so like on a like in a, a coaching journey or a mentoring journey, and then yeah. I do it with organisations. Sometimes I might just do like a session with them, or I might do months of working with them, years. So and that's not just creatives. No, not just creatives. Yeah, okay. No, but I always. And all of us are creative, (laughs) you know, like, you know, I did a talk for a group of business women a few months ago and, you know, I kind of, it was all about creativity and business and there was just all these women and these people were in like big business and, Mm. you know, really big companies that have won awards and, you know, they've been in it for decades. And when I was, you know, asking them a few questions, they go, oh my gosh. I'm so creative every day in my business. I'm going, yeah, like, check you out. Yeah, like, yeah, you, know, you didn't know. Like, and they were just like, you could see the light bulbs going mm. off, realizing every advertising, marketing, conversation, yeah. website, you know, everything in business is creative. So I sort of bring the two together. That's yeah. my little pocket of, you know, genius, I That's guess. That's really it's cool. Fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I help you. artists and creatives actually step into owning what they do and how they do it. Mm. And hopefully make a living from it rather than just have it be a kind of a quiet closet thing yep. that they do. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's people need all the help they can get with that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, the point that pretty much everyone is creative, you can uh, look at Scott Morrison, the former Prime Minister. Um, you know, he managed to create a whole bunch of jobs for himself. I thought you were going to talk uh, about the ukulele. No, no. <laughs> that's true, create a bunch of Even jobs for himself. He just created a whole bunch of jobs. Yeah. That's, how, that's how creative he was. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, anyone can be creative. We can all be we, – it's all part of it. I mean, that's yeah. part of nature, right? I mean, if we look out at nature, that's – nature is incredibly yep. – yeah, it's full of creation, endless creation and change. Yeah, yeah, very true. Well, it's – yeah, it's good to be able to have someone with uh, – especially your experience, I think, to be able to support – People go through that, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels like uh, if anything, change seems to be accelerating <laughs> yeah. in the society that we live in as well. So I think people doing the kind of role you're doing are going to become mm-hmm. um, even more valuable in the future. So I will um, just talk a little bit about uh, Regenesis. So the Regenesis competition was something we ran. Uh, a September? couple of months ago, yeah, yeah and um, we it was essentially a competition for Blue Mountains residents um, in the categories of short story, poetry, and artwork um, on the theme of regenesis. And the Blue Mountains Creative Arts Network, um, Barbara in particular, was a big driver um, of that concept. Um, so we asked a whole bunch of uh, writers and artists in the mountains to to put something together on that particular theme. Um, we held a competition, we came up with a long list and then a short list and then ultimately uh, winners um, of each of those categories. And Shandu Bickford, who's with us today, mm-hmm. was the winner of the short story competition um, with her piece called Narrow Neck. Um, and so what we might do is get Shandu just to read out her short story um, and then we'll uh, have a little bit of chat about 
uh, what it means to Shandu. Um, yeah, and um, hopefully uh, I'm pretty sure everyone will enjoy it. It's a fantastic story. So Shandu, if you'd like to, please uh, read us Narrow Neck. Mm, thanks so much, Zach. This piece is called Narrow Neck. Shh, what do you say? I am listening, straining to hear, not with my ears, with my cells. You speak different to me, differently to me than other spaces. You always have. Your voice beyond language leeches through my blood and bones. I learned of you decades ago when I was young and you were always, as you might always have been, ancient, indifferent, whole. Half a lifetime ago I would come, paintbrush and easel in hand, trying to capture something of your spirit. Cockatoos dived into your gaping canyons. Frost bit into my fingers and toes. <coughs> I'd mix pigment on my palate and squint into your dewy sunrise as currawongs sang up the dawn. But soon I pushed my paints to the side. I closed my eyes and with a youthful hope thought that I might hear what you had to say. Old man Banksia laughed silently at my back. My hair is now streaked the colour of your platinum gums. Grooves like wallaby paths line the soft skin around my eyes. The noise of life gets inside my head and I struggle to hear, to get clear. That's why I return, why I find myself with you, cheek against charred tree trunk, heart beating into your old, cold rock. I rush from my desk, sun low in the west, to find you, to re-find me and you, to remind me who I am. Your trail is ever-changing, yesterday tender, today too hard and bitter. I bite my lip and burrow my head into my scarf. You belt me with your wind and push me back, but still I come. Without a plan I listen and am led, buffeted in directions you choose, or blindly, boldly blazing my way across your stringy bark paths beneath fallen trees, breaking out onto your blistering cliffs. A mad woman, a woman mad for you. On days no one would visit, I am standing on your craggy edge, hair wild, heart open, mouth wide and wailing to the wind. Your southerly roar strips me of all I no longer need, grinds me like stone until I am dust, scatters whatever remains. My walk with you is a form of worship I was never taught, one that our original people know but that we have long forgotten. I'm finding my way back to you across the divides, beyond the constraints and conditioning. I am clumsy and still learning. Listening helps us all. You have shown your generosity and vulnerability. Let me witness your naked form when that firestorm came. It claimed what we'd tried to conserve and created a crematorium in its wake. After the scorch in the emptiness, I stepped into the cathedral of your carnage, my presence loud in your immense quiet. No bird cries or leaves to whisper, just an endless aching view of your wounded wilderness. On my knees in the powdery remains of your trees, I scraped the earth, took fistfuls of your forest and smeared my limbs with their charcoal and ash. I coated my white skin with who you once were, but neither of us were revived. My flesh, like your landscape, lacked lustre, left us only with the lingering sour smell of smoke. We each grieved in our own way. 
Your open canopy invited a clear blue sky. My inner darkness covered the sun. Later, the colonies of cloud came and the prayed-for rain. Black rivers ran from your pain. Your deathbed was cleansed and the coffin of that passing season lay gently adorned with precious pink flowers. Their once-in-a-lifetime presence assured us all was not gone. You have known so many storms and seasons. Your resilience inspires a steadfastness in me. Whether the sun burns or the mist cloaks our valleys in her swirling cloud, I stand and rejoice at the reeds that regrow thick and green. I revel as their tender shoots burst through the blackness and betray the secrets of rebirth. I marvel at the blood-red waratahs who rise in rebellion, their splendour brash, rejection, that any end was ever near. I was bereft, but I swear I always believed. As I've wandered through your wilderness you have watched, and when I come carrying the burdens of bills and the billion worries of motherhood, you don't even blanch. But as the goshawk on the evening breeze pulls my eyes across your uncountable eucalypts, the town and its troubles become small. My tiny world turns into a distant blight upon your brilliant body and is now no bigger than my thumb. Out on the edge your voice finds and fills me. Without words our spirits become one. You speak and I hear through clouds and stone and sky. Perspective is a potent gift. I lay down in your rocky arms and laugh. You have always known this truth. While I am still learning to listen. Learning to remember that your wisdom can be mine when I let it. Beautiful. Thank you so mm. much for that. <clears throat> and it was very well read as well. Yeah. Um, it's very uh, visceral, that story to me. And visual as well. I was well. about to say visual. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like it just... Um, it, 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 it reminds me a little bit about that story you were talking about with the uh, gum trees uh, in Tibet and yeah. how just hearing the tree, the leaves rustling in the trees reminded you of home. Mm. Um, that short story is so visual. It just feels mm. like you're in that particular place and you're hearing those things and you're feeling those things. And there's also, a, um, and I don't know how you've managed to do it, but like a, a poetic rhythm to some of the, um, the sentences as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, Narrow Neck, why, why you wrote this particular story and what it means to you? Narrow Neck is a, for those people who don't know what Narrow Neck is, it's a long peninsula of bushland and rock as part of the World Heritage National Park up here um, based in Katoomba. Um, it's got a, a sort of a bit that you can drive in and then it's gated and so you know you can walk out into the wilderness along the top of this very quite narrow ridge and the further you walk the further you get away from <laughs> everything um, and the, the further you walk into the national park I think for me the idea of being able to walk away and be deeply immersed but also still on top. You know, in the mountains we're often in the valleys mm. and the rivers and yeah. the creeks mm -hmm. but this you, you can stay right on top the whole way out there and it just I, I just know that it just puts so much back into perspective for me, mm. like being able to look back on, you know, Katoomba's a, a fairly, you know, bustling town centre as far as mountains, villages go, and just to be able to look back and just go, gosh, you know, 
half an hour ago or an hour ago I was <laughs> feeling overwhelmed by mm. you know my business or my work or my kids or you know what what's happening in town and then suddenly I'd be out there and it's just like oh I, I don't mm-hmm. have to hold it anymore yep. you know there was just and I just knew that it was just like my life and what was going on was such a small it is such a small part of a much bigger picture yeah and I guess Naranek is just a very small piece of this planet that reminds me of that of reminds me of my piece in the bigger perspective and yeah. is that is that um why you chose the piece for the theme of regenesis as well because you feel like to a certain extent when you go out to narrow neck that you're almost you're almost being reborn to a certain extent you're uh, able to shed all of the baggage from you know life in the big smoke it's katoomba yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah the big smoke here we are yeah. i think um i think pieces choose me actually i i mainly just listen yeah i've learned to just obey what wants to come through so whether it's oh you need to write a 50 word bio at 3 or 30 in the morning <laughs> just download this or whether it's um yeah i i n- have always had a very a very sort of strong visceral relationship with Naranek as a place Mm. um, because I used to paint out there but also because it's just such a unique place. I mean, you know, we think about Katoomba, we think about the Three Sisters, we Mm -hmm. think about Echo Point. You know, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of beautiful places in the mountains to visit but I guess for me there was that sort of remoteness and edginess. Like, I mean, it's a physical edge but there's also an edginess about it, Mm. um, the place. And I don't know, I just, I like edges. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, thank you so much for um, contributing to Regenesis mm. as well. Um, it really, um, that story in particular, I think really helped to add to the uh, the anthology. Um, and I mean, to be fair, there was a lot of competition. There were some really good short stories that were put mm. forward. Um, but uh, particularly on the theme of Regenesis and the local aspect as well i just yeah i think that was a pretty much a clear winner that one mm. um so uh did, are you working on anything in particular like what, what are you writing at the moment um right at the moment i'm writing two submissions for business awards that okay. i've been nominated <laughs> for so yeah i've been nominated for a leadership award and a business excellence award oh, so i'm yeah. writing those right yeah. as we speak yeah. Uh, I am always I'm quite a prolific poet so mm. I'm I'm always writing and I've got another couple of projects that I'm you know collating and working mm. on um but yeah so there's you know watch this space there will mm-hmm. you know there's always there's always work coming it's as a creative um and this is a you know I think a challenge for most of us is you know how to honor the creative work and the creative urges that mm. we have as well as to still walk in the world yeah yeah and yep. when i say walk in the world i mean earn a living you know keep our responsibilities to our families our communities yep. um, our colleagues clients whatever so it's um yeah it's uh, it's a work in progress for me and that's what i help others with but writing is yeah it's part of who i am yeah so yeah there's more coming yeah. and you have an oh sorry go no, ahead you go. i was gonna say you have an instagram that's a, a way that people can follow your yeah. work yeah, is yeah. that the best way yeah so sure instagram is just my name shundu bigford and also Which my is business ch by the way ch yes yep. c-h-a-n-d-u yep. b-i-c-k-f-o-r-d mm. and my business facebook page as well as just my name so and that you know people can 
um, see uh, I'm often sharing inspirational poems and posts bits of prose that mm. I write ideas mm. I mean that's what I, that's the writing that I do kind of daily I'm not putting out too many blogs or anything at the moment I'm just yep. sort of doing more a couple of times a week yeah, yeah. Um, through my local yeah our local socials yeah yep. so cool and we'll put the links to your um, Instagram and Facebook page on the podcast as well oh. Um, so when people download the podcast, they'll see the links to that kind of mm, thing. And yeah, the, great. Yeah, they can pop on and have a look. Um, we're almost out of time. Um, one very important question. Uh, what's the most important tip for people who want to hitchhike around Tibet? <laughs> uh, look, I don't know now, um, <laughs> but I certainly know then was to make sure that you had a chopstick um, and marshmallows so that you could roast them while you were starving yep. in your tent at night and freezing and um, a headscarf to stop all the dust from getting yep. into your hair when you've got as much hair as I do. Okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good advice, I think. <laughs> I think that's still relevant even now. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show mm. um, and for your contribution to Regenesis as well. Mm. Um, greatly appreciated. So we've been talking to Shandu Bickford. Um, clearly a writer I don't think there's any doubt about that Um, yeah and um, as I said we'll put uh, the links to uh, her Facebook and Instagram pages on the podcast information as well Um, and yeah um, anything else you want to say Kath before we sign out no no just thanks for coming this Mm. is nice to hear your story and get to know you a bit and yeah, always, you know, always want to hear the Indigo Girls as well. So I'm yep. very happy with there that. Can't go wrong. <laughs> uh, thank cool. you so much for having me. It's been a joy. And thank you for putting up the competition as well. I think no I think as writers, it's good for us to have opportunities to stretch. Mm-hmm. And I certainly know that this made, you know, the writing of this story really made me stretch into thinking about what my relationship with country mm. is. Yeah, sure. And so that has been a real gift to me. So thank you. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. deadlines yeah. too, I think, right? It's oh, always good. Deadlines. Writers need deadlines to <laughs> actually get started stuff finished yeah. i think oh, that's what a few people part. have told me <laughs> <laughs> uh cool well we're out of time um you've been listening to paperback writer on radio blue mountains 89.1 fm uh to go out we'll play shandu's last uh um, suggested song which is safe by monkey safari and that is a great band name monkey <laughs> Safari. it's a great band I, I it's a great song yeah, yeah cool yeah. i don't think i've heard of monkey safari before but i like the sound of it so um We'll play that. And, uh, yeah, we'll um, be back again soon. Um, And feel free to download the podcast as well.